Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tennis with an Accent. This is Saqib Ali hosting the show. Today, I'm joined by Tennis with an Accent. I'm proud to say regular. You know, he's uh, been here before. Steve Flink, a Hall of Famer historian. Uh, and today, Steve's going to help me unpack uh, the life and times and the legacy of uh, the late Tony Trabert, who uh, passed a few weeks ago. Uh, and uh, on that note, Steve, uh, let's get this conversation going. How are you? I'm good, Sakib. It's great to be back with you again. I'm glad we're going to have the chance to talk about Tony, who was really one of the ultimate gentlemen in the game and very underappreciated by large large segments of the tennis public for uh, many reasons. But uh, he really was a multifaceted individual who contributed mightily to the sport. Hmm. Why would you say that again, if you want to just share maybe some anecdotes or some reasons, uh, and then we can get into you know what I have as far as, you know, recollection of his achievements and some very basic questions which you can, I think, help expand on? Well, you know, Saqib, it's because he he came along too soon. His peak years were the mid-50s when he was a standout, you know, player on the United States Davis Cup team and he won five majors in singles, five in doubles, had this incredible 1955 season which would led up to his turning pro at the end of that year where he won 18 out of 23 tournaments, 106 out of 113 matches, three of the four majors. He was a great player, uh, but that was in the fragmented world when uh, of amateur and professional tennis. So he was an amateur and he turned pro at the end of that year. And by the time Open Tennis came along in 68, uh, you know, Tony was, was, was no longer playing the, the sport. He had a nice professional career. But so a, a lot of his achievements in the fifties got, were sort of lost in the shadows. And that's what I mean about underappreciated. Okay. He was, he, if Tony would have come along 12 years later, if this could have all happened during an open era, and I suspect he could have done very well in open tennis because he was very complete player, very well-rounded, good on all services, won two French in a row in 54 and 55 on the clay, which you wouldn't have thought was his best surface, but he thought of himself as an all surface player. But he was just a great ambassador for tennis because he, he it wasn't just the way he conducted himself to keep on the court, but it was what <clears throat> it was how he represented himself. As you mentioned, his Davis Cup captaincy when the U.S. won a couple of during his uh, essentially five year reign. They won a couple of cups in 78 and 79 under Tony's guidance. He was a remarkably good commentator for CBS for nearly about a 30 year stretch starting in the early seventies. And uh, then he became also president of the international tennis hall of fame. So there were so many levels on which he contributed to the sport and so mightily. And he did it all with such dignity and and grace and humor. Uh, And it was nice because what happened by the way, was when he just had his 90th birthday, last year his his daughter and his family put together a lot of tributes from him i was pleased to be asked to do one myself but they got some real luminaries in there who left messages for tony by video including roger federer who tony thought the world of so great great statesman for the sport i had one more comment to keep in 1985 when tony was in his mid-50s i wrote a column for world tennis magazine uh I was pushing for the notion of Tony as a commissioner of tennis. I thought he would have been perfect for that role because he was so highly regarded worldwide by, by everyone. And I think if anybody could have done it, uh, it Tony would have been 
ideal because he had the right demeanor and the right approach and highly intelligent and and yet he, he could be a strong leader as he showed when he became president of the International Tennis Hall of Fame. So great man in my view. How often did your paths cross with Tony? I mean, uh, he was probably a little before your time before you started covering professionally because I know you started covering in the 70s. So how what was your interactions with him like and how often did you, you know, come across each other uh, to, through tennis? Well, often quite a bit starting in the 70s, the period you're alluding to as I was sort of em- emerging. I had started my career full-time in 74 at World Tennis Magazine. I started in- doing some interviews with Tony the next year and we talked in the, in the initial stages of his Davis Cup captaincy. And then we started, then I worked with him behind the scenes many, many times, particularly in 1976, but uh, in years to follow also as a statistician at CBS. And that was great fun. And that really sort of cemented our friendship. We had a lot of fun with that. And he was always uh, so cordial and so decent. And so I had a lot of interaction with him. And it continued in the years that followed many, many interviews and uh, during those Hall of Fame years, I saw quite a bit of him then as well. The commentary years, I wrote many, uh, several profiles on him. So I got to know Tony quite well. Uh, definitely. That's, that's why I'm lucky to have you here because I, I'm a little uncomfortable. I've never done this kind of a podcast. So, I mean, I'm relying heavily on you to guide me and the listeners who will tune in to learn more about Tony. Uh, again, you know, like as, as as fans or as analysts of the game, we evolve, we learn about these figures, these historic, you know, these historical, you know, these champions. And uh, my, you know, only memory of Tony was like when Michael Chang won. Uh, that's the first memory. And he was answer to a trivia question. He was the last U.S. male to have won in Paris. And, you know, he had done a double, I think, uh, in 54 and 55, winning both singles and doubles. So what was his game like? You mentioned he was an all-court player. Was he? Did he serve in volley on the clay to, to win a Roland Garros? I mean, what was his game style? And how did he accomplish, you know, those two wins? Yeah, he was primarily a serve and volleyer. And uh, he, he picked and choosed a little bit on the clay. But yeah, he was never afraid to attack. And that's what he liked. You know, he didn't want to get bogged down in too many long rallies. Had a beautiful backhand, a flat backhand. Could come over it a little bit. But you know, his was more of a flat ball area. The heavy topspin in the game had not yet really emerged. He might have developed that later, but he he just, uh, he was very aggressive, very sound on the volley. Good serve, not a huge serve, but it always set up his first volley very effectively. And he was a good match player. The thing that was unfortunate for him, let's first allude to your point with Michael Chang. That was a nice moment. He was very happy for Michael because, yeah, Tony had won in 54 and 5 and then we had to go all the way to 89 with Michael before we got another champion. And he was the first one to applaud Michael for that extraordinary feat of Michael's, who was a 17-year-old and, and won, won the French youngest ever and knocked off Lendl in a in the very famous match in the round of 16 from two sets down. And Michael was cramping and he found his way through it and he eventually beat Edberg in the finals. But Tony was a great cheerleader for Michael when that occurred. Uh, but anyway, to get back to just to return to Tony's what happened to Tony after the French of 55, after that great year of 55, he turns pro and played a series against Pancho Gonzalez. And that was tough because Gonzalez was far and away the best player in the world at that time. And they would go around the country in these one night stands, which is what pro tennis essentially was in those days. They had some tournaments and Tony won some some of the bigger pro prizes, but they were largely one-on-one tours, such as Jack Kramer against Gonzalez years earlier. And Jack played a series of top players and 
also played Riggs and played Sedgman and others. And Tony had the unfortunate task of trying to deal with Gonzalez at his zenith. And Gonzalez had one of the great serves of all time. And they would keep playing in really fast conditions and in indoor gymnasiums. The pros in those years, like he traveled all around the country by car. They'd finish a match up in, say, Binghamton, New York one night and then drive six hours to the next arena the next day and play again the next night. And usually in fast kind of cramped conditions. So it really made it even tougher for Tony to overcome Gonzalez with that, who had such a, a fearsome serve. And uh, But he did very well. He still did very well in, outside of his series with Gonzalez in some of the tournaments. He won what was called the French Pro Championships, actually beat Gonzalez in that one. Uh, he won that in, in the 50s and knocked off Gonzalez in the finals and had some wins over Rosewall and Hode and all the rest. So he beat a lot of the top players, you know, you 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 underestimated him at your own peril but then he went on to sort of help jack kramer a little bit with the running of the tour as he ended his playing days and then uh you know he ran a series of very good tennis camps that were really highly regarded for you know recreational but very good top juniors as well and then tony eventually landed in that great cbs commentary seat where he belonged and there was no one who did it with more clarity and and uh, insight than Tony Traber because he could talk to the the common viewer, the club player in there, but it wasn't as if a fellow player wouldn't have loved to have heard his insights as well. So he had a way of speaking to sort of dual audiences and succeeding with both. Uh, he just was a great a, a great ambassador across the board. And he also, I think, worked uh, as a commentator for golf, if I'm not mistaken, or was that a part-time gig? Yeah, it might have been a part time. He liked golf. I'm, I wasn't actually wasn't aware of that. It's possible, but but really, tennis was the mainstay. That's really what he was. And he, you got to remember that the time he was doing the Open, the game was exploding. That was a real tennis boom when Tony was doing his commentary and starting off. And uh, at the '73 Open was his first. And you know, he he really um, he educated a lot of audiences. I know Jack Kramer used to say that he thought of himself. Jack did as sort of a professor of tennis but so was tony and uh and he did it in he, he spoke in such clear terms and understandable terms but explained the game with such depth such clarity he he, he I, I don't think i've ever heard a better commentator and tony could do play by play or color but i think he was best in the color role where he could really concentrate on on that a deep analysis of the sport sure so you did mention, I mean, again, going back to your previous response here about Tony, that, you know, he mixed it up with Gonzalez and you mentioned Kramer, then Hode. So this seems like who who and who of tennis back then. Again, you know, my knowledge is not, you know, as accurate as yours, uh, not even close, but it looks like he was mixing with the best. It was not like he just won because, uh, you know, someone was not there in front of him in the draw, but it looks like he was, you know, mixing it up with the, the best players and, you know, it's it's a pity we don't know how his uh, career slam tally would have been had, uh, you know, the tour not turned professional. Oh, sure. If he had stayed, in the, the, unfortunately, that was the that was the pattern in those days, though, is that you got signed or you were as successful as he was in 55. They were going to they were going to hand you a pretty nice contract. And you really you really didn't want to turn that down it was a chance to make a good living for yourself. And that's what he did. But a couple of things about what happened there. Number one. As happened with Labor, Sagib, years later, after Labor won the Grand Slam in 62, 
he turned pro and through that first half of 63 and beyond, he was getting his brains beat out by the likes of Lou Hode and, and Gonzalez and Rosewall. The top guys were really beating him to a pulp. And then Rod gradually adjusted and, and overtook them and he became the best of the pros, but it wasn't an easy sort of indoctrination into pro tennis. And that's essentially what happened to Tony after that great amateur year of 55 to have to then deal with Gonzalez under the worst possible circumstances but you know he never let it he never let it uh, kind of get in his way and then when he in some of those tournaments he did quite well in the pro events had you know held his own with the likes of Rosewall and and he had played hold in the amateur years too so he knew how to deal with hold he knew that that hold at his best was one of those guys who had, when he was everything was clicking and uh, nobody could beat him but there were also many bad days and ordinary days and Tony would not let him get away with that so yes he and Rosewell was another, you know, Rosewell, he could cause Ken some problems with his aggression, but Ken was such a great player too, that uh, it wasn't easy to dominate him. Despite the fact that Rosewell didn't have a big serve, he had a great all around game and a terrific backhand volley, backhand ground strokes. So Tony had to be at his best, but he really, he actually improved quite a bit in the latter stages of the fifties, facing much sterner opposition than he had in the amateur ranks. So was a U.S. Open uh, played on a different surface back then as in clay, or was it hard courts when Tony won? It was grass. It was still grass. In those it was still days, grass. Okay, yeah. Yeah, in those days, really right up and through 74, uh, three of the four were on the grass. And then uh, the U.S. switched to, to uh, hard true clay the following year in 75. So then, obviously, that re- reduced it to two. And eventually, the Australian, obviously, after... Uh, once they moved to hard, they moved to hard courts in '88. But the, the U.S. was that was a big deal when they switched. But in Tony's days, yes, it was grass. And by the way, the grass was much not nearly as good as the grass at Wimbledon. The venue was beautiful and the courts were beautiful, but they'd get more chewed up. The players were never really as happy performing on those on grass courts in New York. But Tony made the adjustment and won that tournament a couple of times and. Uh, it, he he was very proud of that being being an American to end you know to end the season usually end the season but to sort of try to peak at both Wimbledon and Forest Hills but as an American I think that winning at Forest Hills was particularly satisfying. So uh, Steve, the curiosity gets the better of me again. Uh, the fan comes out and I want to do like some sort of a ranking analysis in your professional coverage of tennis. I'm sure you and fellow uh, members of the tennis media and, you know, fellow analysts must have talked about this. So I just want to know, and maybe a lot of listeners would want to know, where would you rank uh, Tony Trabert in his era of tennis players? And then, uh, as you mentioned in the Sampras book, that could be the part two of this question. Uh, someone who hasn't got a chance to look at that book, where do you rank him in, in the American tennis players uh, in your estimation in all generations? Yeah, those are great questions, Saqib. Let's start with the with his era. And because of his golden season in 1955 when he won three majors and just what he did in the middle of that decade before turning pro, uh, and then he did a fine job in the pro ranks, although, as I've said, you know, Gonzalez was overwhelmed him in so many ways in their personal series once Tony turned pro at the end of 55 and started playing Gonzalez in one-night stands. In one night stands. But looking at Tony in terms of, the impact he has as an amateur. He was the best American amateur player of the 50s. Now, simultaneously, we have to remember that 
Gonzalez was just there was the best American period. And he'd already he was in the pro ranks. And so was Jack Kramer, who had been the, the dominant force of the late 40s, continuing on in the early 50s before Gonzalez really sort of took over by the middle of, of that decade following Kramer's retirement and moving into promoting the tour. So Gonzalez and, and Kramer were, a, were certainly a cut above Tony Traber. And uh, as were the Australians, Lou Hode and Ken Rosewall. So there were greater players than Traber, but he certainly ranked in the upper crust of players, both amateur and pro for his era, no doubt about it. And uh, it, it was it was a little bit difficult for him to have to play that personal series against Gonzalez because that's the way the pro tour was shaped. So when he's playing Gonzalez in these one night stands in 1955, 1956 and get and losing about three quarters of the matches, that that was that was a tough matchup for him. But Tony was capable of beating a lot of the others, including a hold on on given days and Rosewell on given days. He could hold his own with just about anybody because he was an all court player, a complete player. So Tony certainly was the best American amateur of the fifties, not as great a player as either Jack Kramer, who continued to be a force in the early fifties or Gonzalez, who was a force that entire decade. Now of all time, trying to put it in perspective, Saqib, I would say in my Pete Sampras book, where I decided to do an all time American ranking list. I did one separate list for the open era and another list, uh, for all time. And on the all time list, I had Pete at number one, as I felt strongly about that. Then he Pete's followed by in on my list by, by Kramer and then Bill Tilden, of course, who was phenomenal force and sort of was tennis in the 1920s. And then Don Budge won the grand slam in 38 and Gonzalez comes up at number five. Then I, then I put in Connors, Agassi, and McEnroe fill up the six, seven, and eight slots, followed by Ellsworth Vines, who was a dominant, great player in the early 30s. And then Tony came in number 10. That's a much high regard I have for him to put him in the top 10 all time among Americans. When you look at those names of the players ranked above him, Sampras, Kramer, Tilden, Budge, Gonzalez, Connors, Agassi, McEnroe, Vines, that is a stellar lineup. But I felt strongly that Tony had to have a place among the top 10 for the for how great he was in the 50s. And that's why I placed him at number 10 all time among among Americans. Yeah, that's, that's really a, a, a you know, good company to keep. And all those names you took, I mean, that's just amazing, the kind of history. And, and he definitely belongs there. So if we if we were to like wrap this up, I mean, the floor is yours here. Uh, what are some of the defining, you know, aspects of his legacy? I know you gave a good introduction at the beginning, but uh, if, if you want to personalize this as well, because you interact with the man, you know, a lot throughout the years, if you want to share an anecdote and just uh, give a note on his legacy. Yeah, I mean, the legacy is a is a is a multifaceted individual who, who devoted his life to the game. Great amateur player, very successful pro player who did not let his many defeats against Gonzalez uh, sort of dis- destroy his belief in himself because he did so well against others in pro events and even beat Pancho in some of them too. And so I, you know, I consider him a, a magnificent amateur player, did the best he could in the pros, had a, had quite a bit to do with the, uh, how that pro circuit was run. Once he, he helped out Jack Kramer working out of Paris uh, in the early sixties and, 
And I, then I would say, so I think he had quite a, you know, he was, he was around for the a sort of a, a crucial transitional phase of the sport. So, and, and then went on, of course, in the open era to do some between his captaincy and his commentary and his presidency of the International Tennis Hall of Fame, there's not many people that could have filled all of those chairs with the uh, uh, with the persuasiveness and the and the the uh, the clear you know achievements of Traber. I mean, those were three very different roles, and he handled them all beautifully. And it's hard to say which of them he did the best, but I would say. Uh, I particularly I was particularly impressed by what he did in the booth and as the Davis Cup captain, because he was a great leader in that captain. He was tough. He knew how to talk to his players. And uh, I, it's funny. There was one story. I remember him telling me when we did one of our interviews. I, I love this story where we where McEnroe was getting very worked up, as he always did, over the I raid over line calls. And uh, and Tony would be sitting there at the chair. And as you know, the captains in Davis Cup can talk to the players at the changeovers. And uh, so that made it very different, real contrast from tournament tennis. And, and John was getting uh, in his usual agitated state. And Traber turned to him and said, you know, John, you, what you need to think about is I want you to cut down your unforced errors in half. Because if you can do that, you're going to be a lot better off. You're, you're, you're going to make a lot more mistakes than the linesmen are. So worry about your own mistakes. He had the Ability to be that candid with somebody like John Mackin, who later was the first to sing his praises years later, whenever there would be any kind of functions. And, and I, I, I love that about him. This sort of you get right in their face, not 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 in a contentious way, but just very common sense talk. To, and that was true whether he was dealing with Arthur Ashe or Stan Smith or John McEnroe. He was a great, great captain, you know, in the booth, as I say, he had uh, that clarity of vision that ability to explain a match to a novice or a, or a real insider. Then in the, then of course, in the presidency of the tennis hall of fame, he, he just was, he was the walking ambassador of the game who, who commanded everyone's respect. Anecdotes. I, he was a funny guy. So he's a very funny guy. And when I, uh, one year when we were working together in Paris, I was at the French open in 1982 and he was doing the commentary and I helped him then again with the stats. I was over there for world tennis magazine. So I could fit this into my responsibilities. And one day I, I, one morning I woke up in the hotel and realized my passport was gone. Oh. I said, Oh my God, what happened to my passport? And I realized I had obviously had dropped it on the street. I used to take it in the inside pocket of my blazer to over to Roland Garros rather than put it in a safety deposit box. And I obviously had dropped it somewhere, but I had no idea where. So I went over to the U.S. Embassy the morning before working with Tony that afternoon at the matches. And they sent me around to, a, I had to fill out a form. They wouldn't let me in the embassy. Then once I filled out the form about two blocks away, I came back. They let me in. Long story short, as soon as I walk in, I go to this desk. I told them my name. I told them I lost the passport. This woman walked about 20 feet away and came back with the passport in her hand. There it was. So lucky, so relieved. So I get to the tennis and tell, told Tony the whole story. And he was very sympathetic about how they, they had, you know, the guard had not been very nice at the embassy and couldn't have been more supportive and sympathetic. But in the years to follow, every time I would see him, he would always say, OK, Steve, where's your passport? Where's the passport? You know, <laughs> and that, that was him. He loved to needle. And I know another story. Another friend of mine was with him once at a with a at a um, 
having dinner. A bunch of them were having dinner. And Tony, uh, th- it was a very busy restaurant. And, and they went and asked for a table. And they were told it could be an hour and a half. And, and he said, but we made a reservation. And then they said, what's the name? And then he didn't use his name. He used a different name in this case. And they said, well, we don't have that down. And he said, well, that does it. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to fire my secretary. I told her to make this booking. She promised. And they said, oh, no, no, sir. So no, 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 please don't do that. They got him. They had him a table in five minutes. So, so you know, and, and, and he and his friends were just had got all the chuckles in the world over that. And, but you know what? That, 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 there was a serious side, too, and, and uh, a decency, a really uncommon decency, which is why there was such an outpouring of affection for him at this birthday tribute that did last year that his daughter organized where there were so many players and figures in the game who got on their video and, you know, sent the video so Tony could watch it at home in Florida. And uh, I don't, I don't know many people in his position. There there wouldn't, there would, you know, here he was at 90 reaching the end of his, his last birthday as it turned out. And, and, and here was this incredible outpouring for him from the entire tennis community. And that included Federer, who didn't know him that well, but had met him a few times and understood. Federer understood uh, Trebert's contribution to the history of the sport. So, I mean, he was a very dignified individual, very amusing and and incredibly insightful. Uh, I think that's just uh, lovely. I think uh, especially those anecdotes that kind of uh, personified this podcast a little more because you knew him. And folks like us, you know, now this is uh, this is like a lasting memory. So, Steve, yeah, I think this is uh, this is just brilliant. And and thank you for doing this. I know in such a short notice, we've talked about it, and then Australian Open was going on. So, so before I let you go again, uh, when Michael Chang broke his record, uh, not broke his record, I mean, b- became the first American since Tony. Yeah, like looks like uh, after Agassi, I think we will have to wait a long time. For, for American men to win in Paris again, you know, we don't know what the future holds. Yeah. Like the long drought. <laughs> yeah. Well, of course it's true. So give no doubt about it. And, and Pete Sampras never had any luck there and he lost in the semis in 96 was his best chance. But now of course the, the drought really goes much deeper than just the clay because the last American man to win a singles major was Roddick at the 2003 U.S. Open, the year after Pete Sampras won his last one. So think about that. I mean, we're coming up pretty soon on, on you know, it'll be, it, it, well, it'll be 18 years at this Open since, since, Amer- since an American man succeeded at any of the majors. Yeah. So, of course, our, that the problems, have, you know, that it's been more of a worldwide issue now more than just the French. But no doubt that our players, by and large, tend to be groomed much better for hard courts than they are for clay. That's not the USTA's fault. I know in the player development program, they constantly go out of their way to make sure that these guys develop, you know, good sound clay court skills as well. But by and large, you know, these, the likes of say a Taylor Fritz or Tiafo, they're, they're more comfortable on, on hard courts, on faster courts than they are on the clay. And that's just, that's just how it is. But boy, we've had a long drought everywhere in the world, not just at Roland Garros. Yep. So, again, that's going to be, you know, part of uh, many a fascinating conversation as hopefully I host you again and talk about more American players. But, uh, yeah, thank you for joining uh, me on this uh, Tony Trebert special podcast. I learned a few things and hopefully the listeners here are 
uh, grateful with your insights and will benefit from this kind of a podcast. Well, I'm glad, uh, Sakib. I'm really glad you gave me the chance because I, I held him in such high regard, and uh, you know, we all kind of thought we were thought we were lucky to know him. There was something about him that was that made him larger than the game, and I can't put my finger on any one thing, but it was just his the way he conducted himself across the board. You 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 kind of knew that uh, his stature just w- was unmistakable. Yeah. I think we should just end on this note. I think his legacy should carry on and uh, we'll be back with another episode, Dennis with an accent in a week's time. Thank you, Steve Flink. Thank you very much, Akiba. Enjoyed it.